Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, as you can see my condition this morning, I didn't think I was getting enough sympathy or pity, so I asked for some crutches for Father's Day. Uh, no, I, somebody asked me uh, what happened, and I told them I got old, and uh, that's what happened, so... My MBA aspirations, I think, are gone, uh, but uh, I'll try to learn my lesson. But thank you for your prayers and uh, appreciate it. I'll go in tomorrow to see what the uh, damage is done. Hopefully just a, a high ankle sprain and nothing worse, but uh, yet to be seen. So we're going to give this a try today. The scripture says to preach the word in season and out of season. And uh, that might mean on two feet or just one. So we're going to give it a go. So Acts chapter 18 this morning beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found with his wife, excuse me, he found a Jew named Aquila, a name of Pontius, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for their... uh, and excuse me, and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a named Mantidius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the Jews. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. I'm sure many of you have seen the late-night infomercials or ads on social media that promise loads of money with minimal work, a get-rich endeavor where money will come flowing into your bank account if you just sign up and give yourself to it. All you have to do is just kind of sit back and relax. Well, these schemes, and that's exactly what they are, schemes, 
I always have testimonials of some Bob and Cindy who went from barely making it to this brand new and oh so much better lifestyle. But I tell you, don't fall for it. Because those that are blessed financially will tell you that they didn't just wake up one day rich or that they fell into it. No, it came with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and many long hours. In other words, it took labor, day after day, doing the same thing over and over again. I remember hearing an interview one time that kind of demonstrates this, and it was an interview with a musician that had the opportunity to play with Jackson Brown. Perhaps you're familiar with him. And he lived with Brown and with the band. And this musician said, without fail, every morning, if they were on tour or not, Brown would wake up at 7 a.m. and he would get to his piano. And he would plunk out a few notes. And then he would go back and do it again. And then add a few notes and then another. And the audience only ever saw the end results and thought it came quite natural, quite easy. They didn't realize all the work and effort that came into making good music. And I think that is true of almost everything in life. People make things look very easy, especially if they are a master at it. But oftentimes to be a master at it, as it is said, it takes about 10,000 hours in order to perfect the craft in which you are so fluent and make look so easy. In other words, a successful life is one of plotting, step by step, over and over, again and again. And that is not only true of life and vocation and profession, that is true of ministry as well. There's a plotting nature to ministry. And what I think we see in our passage this morning is that Paul in Corinth demonstrates that. That in Corinth there was not ministry explosion, but there was a simple, simple, faithful plotting. And Paul goes about with the others in hard work amidst opposition and persecution and even fear. If we see it and define it, I think we would have to say that he was about the work of plotting, faithful plotting that the Lord blesses. And as a result, Corinth becomes a very important church in a very important area. And I think we can learn a lot from Paul's ministry there. His methodology is still what is required and needed today. And I believe it will be until the Lord returns again. So what was Paul's methodology? Well, there's five points this morning that I think lays out his strategy of ministry amongst Corinth. The first is partnering. Second is persuading. Third is parting. Fourth is persisting. And fifth is persevering. First, we see this partnering Last week, if you were with us, we saw this famous sermon that Paul gave at the Oropagus in Athens. It was an amazing opportunity, one that Paul did not miss or back down from. However, it does not seem as a whole 
that Paul's ministry in Athens was incredibly successful. In fact, we know that the entire Oropagus was not won over. We read in verse 32 of chapter 17 that some mocked and some said that they would hear Paul once again, but it seems that only a very few believed. In fact, Luke does not say that many believed, but he says that some believed. And we don't really hear of a church being established in Athens, nor an epistle or a letter written to Paul to the believers there in Athens. Which, if you think about it, might seem a little bit odd. You might think if there was any place that would be primed for for real truth, for real wisdom, it would have been Athens. But as we saw last week, Paul or Luke tells us that in Athens, the people in Athens, verse 21, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing things that were new. See, they liked the new. They liked the novel. They liked the in vogue ideas of the day. They didn't want the old past, the old truths. Rather, they wanted to know that which was new, which was current, that which was modern. We know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we know that many of the Corinthians were puffed up with knowledge, and that was true of most of the Greeks and no more true than in that of Athens. And so the message of a crucified Savior, that of picking up your cross and following him in humble servant was a bit below them. And that is still very much true today. I believe this is why Christ is oftentimes mocked in higher education and corporate America. Because why? It runs on a different system, doesn't it? The system that is, it's not what you know, but who you know, and how you can make yourself a, a, a good impression. And you have to build that resume, and you have to work hard, and you have to do more, and you have to be recognized, and you have to get promoted, and you have to climb that ladder. It's a system of meritocracy, isn't it? Really works-based righteousness. And I say that because we must be careful with that. We must be in the world, but not of the world. We must not give ourselves to the same system that the rest of the world gives itself to. And I say that we must be forewarned of that because I think it's very easy to get our identity wrapped up in your type of work by climbing that type of ladder. It can be where your soul becomes fed, where you become Johnny Good Job and Sally Superstar in the workplace rather than what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that it should be our ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business, to work with our hands, and walk properly before outsiders. In other words, we must be first and foremost God-fearers rather than man-pleasers. We're not to participate in a system that emphasizes self and de-emphasizes or even mocks Christ and the ways of Christ, all for the sake of self-promotion. And so let me say, as we begin this morning, do not sell your soul to the highest bidder. That is seemingly what the Athenians had done. 
They had the appearance of wisdom and knowledge rather than desiring real wisdom, the, the wisdom that is found in Christ. And therefore they became hardened towards the way of the cross. And so as a result, we read in verse 1 that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. If Athens was like Oxford or Harvard of the day, then Corinth would have been like London or New York, meaning Athens was the intellectual center of the day, but Corinth was the commercial center. When Paul went there, it was a booming port city. There was probably 200,000 people, which would have made it quite sizable in the Greek and Roman world during that day. And many commentators say that the Corinthians were concerned with three main things, money, sports, and sex. So in other words, it wasn't much different than our culture today. In fact, as I went to the gym, I looked up and on the TV screens there was ESPN, MSNBC, and then some sexualized sitcom. And I thought, yep, not much has changed over 2,000 years. In fact, Corinth was home to the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And some ancient historians believe that when Paul went to Corinth, that temple was made up of about 10,000 male and female prostitutes. In fact, there was a, a term during that day to be Corinthianized, which meant to be sexualized or to be of a sexual nature. And so if you ever think that our culture has become over-sexualized and that is something new and that the New Testament or the apostles don't really understand our culture or live in a, a different day and age, we must really think again. And that's why I think it is so important for us to, to study Paul's ministry to the Corinthians because I think it's a model for, for modern ministry. And we do not need to invent new approaches and new methods. No, we must be reminded of the, the biblical model and the biblical methods that are indeed tried and true. And so the same ministry that was needed for a lost and dying world in first century Corinth is the same ministry that is needed in the 21st century Western culture such as ours. And so what do we see Paul doing? Well, first, we see him partnering. We see that he goes to Athens. And as he goes to Athens and then goes to Corinth, he is all alone. Remember, Timothy and Silas stayed back in Thessalonica and Berea to kind of stabilize those ministries as Paul went ahead. And as he, that is, Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, we read that he found a man, verse 2, named Aquila, and his wife, Priscilla. It seems that Paul intentionally searched them out. Perhaps he had heard of Aquila and Priscilla from other believers that had come to where he was and told him about this wonderful couple in Corinth. And it might have been the very reason that Paul left Athens to go directly to Corinth. And he probably went there for two reasons. Well, first, because they were tent makers. It was a trade that Paul was familiar with and skilled in. It was a way that he could 
provide for himself and often did. And so to have a vocational connection there in Corinth, no doubt, made some sense. No doubt he had to leave behind some of his financial supplies as he went ahead to Athens and then to Corinth. And so he needed to find a way to provide for himself, to provide his basic needs. But I believe it was more than just that. As I mentioned, Paul was ministering alone in Athens. And so therefore, I believe Paul was desirous of partnership, as well as Christian fellowship. See, too often I think that we believe that Paul was a lone ranger coming in on a horse and being a a one-man band, as it were. But Paul was rarely alone in ministry. That was not the norm. You remember when Paul and Barnabas split ways. He soon thereafter takes Timothy under his wings And we say the same thing here as he ministers alone in Athens. As he comes to Corinth, he actively finds out Aquila and Priscilla. And I believe that is a key lesson that we must not miss. That no Christian is to be a lone ranger. God told us at creation when he made mankind, when he made Adam, he said it is not good that man be alone. And I don't think he was just speaking of marriage. Rather, he's telling us that we are relational beings and that we are to work and we are to worship and we are to minister and we are to fellowship in conjunction with one another. Always. I do not believe there is an exception. And I think most of you understand that. Most of you Look for that. Most of you enjoy being with each other, but I must tell you that I think there are some of you that think that you can be lone Christians. That we are grateful that you come, but you only occupy that spot, that seat from 11 to 12. And I tell you that that is not being a church member. That is not getting to know the body of Christ. That is not going to help you out. That is not going to encourage you. You must Know the body of Christ. You must be a part of the body of Christ. You must minister with the body of Christ. The same may go for those that watch on the live stream or this recording of this sermon. And you might think, if, unless you're providentially hindered, well, I can get everything I need from this video feed. I don't need the body of Christ to live the Christian life. I don't need fellowship. I don't need building up. I don't need partnering with one another. Nope, all I need is Jesus and me and this video stream. And I think Jesus would say to you this morning, no, you do need me, but you also need my body. You need my church. And that's exactly what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, does he not? That the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I've learned that over the last couple days. I I need my feet. He goes on to say, we are the body of Christ. And so look around. Look around at the body that is Smyrna Presbyterian Church. We need you and you need us. And life is better in fellowship and partnering with one another. It's key to ministry. It's key to the Christian life. And I think this friendship with Aquila and Priscilla demonstrates it, that even the Apostle Paul 
needed encouragement. He needed others to, to work alongside with. And it's true for us as well. Well, the second part of his methodology was persuading. We see that in verse 4. Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is really a summary of the entire ministry of the Apostle Paul. He reasoned, he tried to persuade, obviously, from the Scriptures. We see that in verse 5, that he was testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And it says that he was doing this every Sabbath. In other words, it was constant. It was repetitive. And I think that's important to remember because Paul, at his heart, his theology was that of being a Calvinist, that he fully believed in the sovereignty of God. I I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. But uh, we know that Paul indeed believed that mankind was dead in their sins and their transgressions. That no one seeks God, no, not one. He was not ignorant of the spiritual state of, of mankind. He fully understands the doctrine of election and regeneration. Paul fully proclaims those in all of his letters. But yet, that did not dis- discourage him from continuing to preach and to proclaim and to persuade all that would listen In other words, Paul believed in means, namely the means of the Word of God, the means of preaching, the the means of teaching, the the means of proclaiming and testifying and persuading, because the the Spirit uses the Word to make a, a man or make a woman go from spiritual death to spiritual life, and we cannot forget that. As you look at your neighbors, as you look at your co-workers and see that they are lost as lost can be, we cannot think, well, you know what, they'll, they'll either believe or they won't believe. I guess it all depends if they're elect or not. No, we need not worry about their election, nor yours. That is in God's hands. Rather, we are to be faithful, faithfully continuing to bring the Word of God and faithful does not mean, you know what, I, I mentioned God one time in a conversation and they didn't take it. They didn't take, it, take me up on that. They didn't want to discuss and get into theology and get into Bible. No, it's speaking again and again and again the words of Christ, that those would be upon our lips. And if that would be too difficult for you, and I would ask you, then give the invitation to church. Bring them here. Because again and again and again, what are we going to do? We are going to preach and proclaim and persuade people to Christ. That is the nature of ministry, week in and week out. Let us not be those type of Calvinists or Reformed people that are not about the work of evangelism. Spurgeon, in a very famous quote, said, If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the back of the elect, I would go around lifting up coattails. But since he did not, I preach the gospel to all men. That's indeed what we must do as well, one-on-one as well as in the context of this church body, persuading people to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, third, we see a parting. That the Apostle Paul 
did not strive with those that would not listen forever. You see this in verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. He doesn't continue to, to preach the gospel to the Jews because they don't want anything about it. They do not want to hear it. They are blocking their ears. And as a result, Paul symbolically shakes out the dust from his garments and moves on to those that are willing, to those that are receptive. And we see this not only with the Apostle Paul, but we see this with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he did the same thing as well. Uh, He, in his ministry, began to speak and teach less and less to the Pharisees. And why was that? Well, it was because they had no desire to learn. They were only trying to use his words to trap and to accuse. And so he turns his attention to his disciples. And in fact, he tells his disciples to do the same, right? In Mark chapter 6, as he sends them out two by two, he says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It was a symbolic, prophetic judgment that was given on that city, upon that town, in this case, upon this synagogue, and upon these people. It demonstrates that the judgment of God is upon themselves. That Paul tried, that Paul ceased, never ceased tirelessly to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so no doubt the question is, is there a time that we must as well do the same? Part ways and put distance in relationships. I believe there is. And you might ask, when is that? And I would tell you that is difficult to say and to discern. And we must not do it quickly. We must remember that God did not abandon us upon our first rejection, did he? Nor should we. But if there is some persistence and all you get is hostility and outright rejection, not just opposition, but revilement, when it becomes more than just the subject matter at hand, but it becomes deeply personal, that is when we perhaps need to give it some space and give it some time. You see that with Paul. It says that he not only they opposed him, but they reviled him. Jesus tells us that we're not to give to dogs what is holy and not to throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You hear what Jesus is saying when when people become more animal-like in their response. That's a time when you put distance and don't continue to do the same and surely don't return evil for evil. And that is difficult That is hard. It's no doubt hurtful and painful because obviously you are giving this message out of love. You're wanting to see them become believers because it will be good for them. But Christ in the gospel oftentimes clearly distinguishes right from wrong, righteousness from unrighteousness. And that strikes a a nerve for many, if not most, And oftentimes, you as the messenger will be on the receiving side of that, and it will come out in hatred. 
but we must remember what Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And therefore, it's hard to do, but we ought not take rejection personally. We must continue to pray. We must pray for a softening of hearts and minds and a a future opportunity. But nevertheless, there is times that we must part ways as much as it breaks our hearts. But this parting does not mean that we cease doing what we are called to do. Because we see, again, in our fourth point, we see Paul persisting. Paul continues on doing what he was called to do, just no longer in the synagogue. But you got to love this. you got to love Paul's ideas and the ways that he thinks and, and how his mind works. It says that he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house just happened to be next door to the synagogue. In other words, Paul just moved spots. He just moved one door down to this home that happened to be next to the synagogue. And I could imagine as the people would go to synagogue, Paul would just probably place himself right outside the doors and just kind of wave to everybody saying, remember me, I'm still here. And it demonstrates that Paul was a a man on a mission and nothing was going to deter him from doing that which he was called to do. He couldn't be in the synagogue. Okay, I'll be right next to the synagogue. And therefore, he was a a constant reminder for all of those Jews. And we're going to the synagogue, the message of the cross, the message of Christ, the message that the Messiah had come. And they had a choice every time they went, either to turn into the synagogue or, or turn into, no doubt, an open door to hear more of Paul's teaching and more of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be received in and to be saved. And when there was, no doubt, there was much rejoicing. That's what Jesus tells us, right, in that parable, that when one sinner repents that there is joy in fact he says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance but there is great joy in heaven when there are those that come to the lord jesus christ and we read of one that came luke mentions one And he's not just anyone. We see in verse 8 that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, believed in Christ, together with his entire household. Do you hear what his role was? He was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, and yet he believed. He turned away. He knew that this was what was right. This is what was true. This is what the Old Testament had promised And he believed. And I tell you, God bless this man. I desire to to shake his hand one day in the new heavens and the new earth because he had every reason not to believe. No doubt that believing in Christ meant that he would lose his position, not only in the synagogue, but in the entirety of the Jewish community. But yet once you see the truth, once you 
hear the truth. You cannot unsee it, can you? You cannot unhear it, even if it costs you everything. And so I believe this man, was, his name was is not, not only written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but it was written here in Holy Scripture for the church to, to remember and for the church to rejoice. Here was a fellow brother who was willing to forsake it all for the sake of Christ. And that should be an encouragement to us, shouldn't it? That we can do the same if it comes to it. We remember that those that forsake all, gain all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the Lord would do the same. And that's why we must continue to persist. That's why we must continue to do what we do. I ask you, what extent would you go to, to see your son or your, your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter know salvation would you ever give up on them i know the answer to that you wouldn't if their eternal soul was at stake you would continue to to pray and you would continue to plead with the lord and you would continue to to ask god that there would be many opportunities for that son or that daughter that has gone wayward to hear the message of christ And that's what we must remember as we go about our our daily business is that we're meeting somebody's son and somebody's daughter, somebody's grandson, somebody's granddaughter, and no doubt there perhaps is a parent or a grandparent that has been praying unceasingly for their salvation. And you may be the one. The Lord may use you for that very purpose. And even if they don't have somebody praying for them, they might be one of the Lord's lost sons or lost daughters. They might be one of the prodigals that is on their way back home. And that's why I tell you, it should give us all the motivation that we need to continue to do what we are doing, to keep going, to keep persisting, to keep running the the good race, fighting the good fights, continuing to be the salt and light to a dying world. Well, fifth and final, not only do we see persisting, but we see persevering. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. We see that this ministry of persisting plotting does not come without a cost. No, there is a cost. And no doubt the cost of ministry will be severe at times. As we mentioned, like Crispus, it it may mean giving up everything for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And the Apostle Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul experienced this probably better than anyone. In fact, he tells the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety 
for all the churches. And then he goes on to say, who is weak? And I am not weak. He says, am I not weak? Of course, he is. As we read through that list, if any of those things happened to us, I think we would say, you know, I'm out. Tap out. I'm done. But Paul continued on. And it's not because Paul was some type of superman, impervious to affliction. No, he was flesh and blood. And no doubt this took a toll upon him. And he knew the reality. He knew the constant reality that any moment, at any time, he could be dragged in front of some rulers, sent to prison, and even executed and killed. And no doubt he lived with that looming reality at all times. And no doubt it, it bore upon his heart and bore upon his soul his impending doom and, and even death. Do you think there came fear with that? Of course. How could there not have been? And in fact, we read of that in verse 9. It says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Really, it should be rendered, do not be afraid any longer. Implying that there was fear. Again, how could there not be? And we read that Paul was given a very specific promise here. He's is told to continue on, to speak, and not to be silent. For no one will attack you. No one will harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. We see that that specific prayer and that vision played out in verses 12 through 17, where Paul is dragged in front of the tribunal, the very thing that he feared. And yet, what do we read? That Gallio, the proconsul, the judge, saw that what the Jews were trying to do, saw what Paul was doing, and he saw no wrongdoing or no crime. And he essentially says, this is a religious matter. See to it yourself. Essentially, he tells the Jews, Jews, I'm not going to do your dirty work for you. It's in fact the same thing that Pontius Pilate said of the Lord Jesus Christ before caving into the crowds and the demands. But Gallio doesn't cave. And good for him. It reminds us that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. And like a river of water, he steers it and turns it wherever he, he wishes. In this case, he, he turned the, the leader who was no doubt not a Christian, but yet he turned this ruler's heart towards a, a way of compassion, at least a way of protection. And as a result, Paul was able to stay in Corinth a, a long time. This is a, a year and a half, which was much longer than most places. And no doubt, Paul was comforted by this, this protection. But notice, it was more than just protection. God gives Paul a specific promise. He gives him the promise of his presence. Notice that. He says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Verse 10, for I am with you. I am with you. 
And that is not just a specific promise to the Apostle Paul. That is a universal gospel promise to all. That the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. That his presence would always be with us no matter what we are going through. No matter the affliction or tribulation or trial or difficulty. And therefore we need not fear. Children, you sang about that in your vacation Bible school song, didn't you? Fear not. Why? For I am with you. That idea, that thought comes from this very passage. And let's be frank, we fear because we often do forget that the Lord is with us, that He is near us, that He is sovereign over it all, that He knows what we need even before we ask it. And so we need not fear. Paul needed that message on that day. And we need that message. I need that message. And that is why we must continually be reminded this is the reason why we continue to go. This is why we continue to persist. This is why we continue to persevere and will persevere to the very end because the Lord has promised his presence with us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That must be a very rich and precious promise to each and every one of us. It must be one of those promises that is driven down deep into your soul. It must be a stake. It must be a buoy. In the midst of all of life's afflictions, in the midst of all of life's difficulties, you must not forget that the promise of the Lord is that he would be with you. Is his name not Emmanuel? It is. And so therefore, he will and always be with us. And that is why I didn't have plans on saying this unless the text led me to it. But I think it is appropriate in the light of this passage that this will be the last time that I preach, at least on a Sunday morning, before my sabbatical. And so I think it's appropriate for me to say that I'm extremely grateful for a church that is willing to value me and my family enough to be without us for a time, to grant the, the gift of time when my Marriage is healthy by God's grace. Where my children love me and don't hate me, at least most days, I think. I love ministering. I love doing what I am doing. And I can't imagine doing anything else. And by God's grace, don't want to do anything else for many a years. As long as the Lord would give me breath by his grace. But I do have to admit that My soul is a bit weary, and obviously my body is a bit weary too, but that's another story. And whereas I would never compare myself to the ministry of the Apostle Paul or have gone through the tribulations or trials that he has gone through, I tell you that there is a toll to ministry and just to life in general. And those things have added up. We have had many challenges, as many of you know, of my wife's illness over most of the time that we've been here. And I'm 
extremely grateful for the tremendous improvement that she has had and for your prayers and for your care for us as a family. But I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say it had not been difficult. And we, and more she than me, have oftentimes suffered in silence. And so I'm grateful for time to be refreshed and to be recouped, to gain a perspective so that we can persevere together in ministry, so as to be reminded of this wonderful promise of the Lord, that I am with you, that I am your Emmanuel. And I hope in so doing, in our departure for just this short season, that you would be reminded of that promise as well. And if you have profited from my ministry, praise God. But let me remind you that it's not ultimately my ministry, is it? It's the ministry of the Lord, and that your true shepherd, your true pastor, will never leave you or forsake you. Because the Lord will never, never do that. And so, as I bid adieu for a time, let us continue on believing and trusting in the promises of God and believe that the, the task will go on and it will go on. Remember, this is his ministry. It always has been and always will be by his grace. And so by his grace would we continue to plot on all for his glory's sake. Amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful and grateful for the ways that you love us and care for us and show us in your scripture that which is good and that which is right. And Lord, forgive us for thinking that we have come up with new novel ways to to minister to our world and to our culture, ways that have never been thought of or ways that have never been done. Lord, Oftentimes, it's just man-made foolishness, and we ask for forgiveness of it and repent of it. Lord, let us go back to the old paths, the old ways, the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Jesus crucified for sinners like us. Let us continue about the, the work of preaching and proclaiming, of evangelism and the work of testifying to our friends and to our neighbors of the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus Christ, that calling for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you gather us together, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to love and to serve you as you have called us to. And Lord, by your grace, would we not only persist, but would we persevere until you would come again? Would you find a church, this church, faithful, Would you find its lampstand continuing to burn and even burn more fervently in love and joy and adoration because of what Christ has done for us and what Christ is continuing to do through us. And so, Lord, would you bless and would you keep and would we be reminded that you indeed never leave us nor never forsake us. For that is the promise that we keep close to our heart, Lord, that we drive into our soul this very day, 
until we would see you face to face and we would never be outside of your presence. Lord, would you allow us by your spirit to continue on. We pray it all in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.